Thank you, Talisa, for that. Uh, we have indeed beheld His glory. We pray that we would be, behold the glory of the Son again and afresh in this next hour together. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. Now, I have become convinced that the most serious calling and stewardship that pastors have today is to prepare their congregations to endure suffering and persecution in a way that honors Christ. We all need to be equipped to suffer well, to suffer according to the will of God, as Peter puts it in chapter 4, verse 19 of this very letter. It's become more obvious, perhaps more than it's ever been in our lifetime, that Christians are pilgrims. We are, 1 Peter 1, 1, those who reside as aliens. In verse 17, he speaks of the time of our stay or the time of our sojourn on earth. This world is not our home. We are exiles, strangers in this foreign sin-cursed land, sojourning to the country of our true citizenship where righteousness dwells. And so it is no surprise that as citizens of heaven, we come into conflict with the enemies of righteousness and that those enemies grow hostile to us. We who are unimpressed with all that they hold dear, we who are wholly devoted to the holiness that marked the life of Jesus our Lord, whom this world hated and put to death. In one sense, it should be no surprise. Those who think and speak and act and look like Jesus in a world that hated and mocked and crucified Jesus will be marked by the afflictions of Jesus. And yet, we in North America have, have enjoyed such abundant measure of God's common grace and kindness that we have come to expect the world to be hospitable to the church. But over these past two and a half years especially, the way that the governing authorities really throughout the world, but especially here in Southern California, have mobilized against people of conscience, the way that the culture has rushed so violently into its repudiation of the foundational core truths of the biblical worldview and into its celebration and defense of immorality in every sphere of life. It's convinced me that our commitment to Christ and Scripture will be tested in ways that we have not seen in, the part of, in this part of the world. And because what I want more than anything is for Christ to be magnified in His people, to be magnified in you, for you to glorify and honor Jesus in your lives, for your lives to make Christ look as glorious as He is. I believe that one of the most significant responsibilities that we have as pastors is to prepare you to stand firm against persecution in a way that makes much of Jesus. And to do that, our pastoral staff actually preached through the entire letter of 1 Peter on Sunday evenings from March through October of last year. 
Peter writes to persecuted believers in the Roman Empire under Nero. Nero, who had been burning various buildings throughout the city of Rome and telling the public it was the Christians who were burning the buildings. Nero, who had been impaling Christians on spikes and lighting them on fire to use as human torches. It was as plain as it could be that these believers were aliens and strangers in the world and needed to bear up under unjust suffering. First Peter functions as something of a traveler's guide to the pilgrim's journey through the land of his sojourn. How are you going to navigate your way through this hostile territory in a way that glorifies and honors your king? Peter answers that question in this letter. And after praising God in verses 3 through 12 for the privileges that we persecuted pilgrims enjoy by grace, he issues three overarching commands from verses 13 to 21. In verse 13, he calls them to a life of steadfast hope. Fix your hope completely on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In verse 15, He calls them to a life of universal holiness. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. And then in verse 17, he calls them to a life of holy fear. If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Rather than fearing the wrath of their persecutors, and succumbing to the temptation of compromising their faithfulness to Christ amidst suffering, they must fear God, who is not only our accessible Father, but is also our impartial judge. And this holy fear of God that strengthens believers to endure persecution faithfully, this fear is not the terror that rightly grips the heart of the unbeliever who stands before the bar of God's justice in the nakedness of his own righteousness. No, it is the fear that sons and daughters have for their father, whom they love, the fear that desires to please God precisely because we belong to him, because we love him and don't want to displease or dishonor him. This is the key, Peter says, for the pilgrim to stand firm in suffering. Pass the time of your sojourning in fear. Well, a year and a half ago, I was assigned to preach chapter 1, verses 17 to 21 during our Sunday night series. But I didn't quite make it to verses 20 and 21. I ran out of time, as I often do. And so I thought I would take this opportunity to finish that text. You say, ambitious, uh, part two after a part one a year and a half ago. And you're right, but I believe in the Holy Spirit. And, but as I mentioned all that time ago, 1 first, uh, first Peter 1, 17 to 21 gives us, gives the suffering believer three considerations to meditate upon to feed this holy fear of God that will sustain us in our trials. Three considerations that will help us cultivate this fear that will preserve us from compromise, even in the midst of persecution, so that we will be prepared to suffer well. And we made it through two of them back then, and I'll recap them briefly. The first came in verse 17, namely, 
consider the prerogative of your father. The prerogative of your father. Peter says, your father shows no partiality. He hates sin wherever he sees it. And if he sees it in his children, though his judicial wrath against it has been satisfied by the blood of Christ, he is nevertheless displeased by it. And precisely because he loves you, he disciplines you, Hebrews 12. And he sends forth that hand of discipline to correct and to chasten us. And yet that discipline, though with an ultimately loving end, is not pleasant to undergo. And so Peter says, conduct yourselves in fear of that discipline. You don't want to displease your gracious Father. You don't want to come under His discipline, so conduct yourselves accordingly. A second consideration that feeds the pilgrim's holy fear came in verses 18 and 19. And that was, number two, consider the price of your redemption, the price of your redemption. He says, conduct yourselves in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. The price of your redemption, Christian, was the blood of the spotless lamb of God. It was the blood of God the Son Himself. Jesus never even deserved to have blood, let alone have His blood be shed by wicked men. There is no more precious, worthy, estimable price of anything in the world than the blood of Christ. And so Peter says, if that was the cost of your redemption out of the slavery of sin, Can you treat this blood as such a contemptible thing that you give no thought to living the very life of sin that this blood was shed to redeem you from? You see, when you give yourself to the very lawless deeds that the blood of Christ was shed to free you from, you conduct yourself in a way that indicates that you do not believe that that blood is precious. And everything in you ought to shrink back from that thought in fear. See what he's saying? Conduct yourselves in fear because you know how precious was the price of your redemption. Fear living your lives as if the ransom price of Christ's blood was not precious to you. Well, there's a third consideration. That will strengthen and support your holy fear of God during the time of your stay on earth. Not only the prerogative of your Father, not only the price of your redemption, but number three, consider the glory of your Savior. The glory of your Savior. Look at verses 20 and 21. Peter mentions the name of Christ at the end of verse 19, and then he just bursts out in praise. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This glorious redemption purchased by the precious blood of Christ, Peter says, this was no afterthought. This was no accident. This was the gracious plan of God determined before the world began. 
That Christ would appear on the earth as, in, as the incarnate God-man. That He would live a perfect life of obedience to the law of God. That He would die to shed His precious blood to ransom His people from sin. And then He would be raised from the dead and seated in glory at the right hand of the Father in heaven and become the sole source of faith and hope in the one and true and living God to everyone who believes. I love how Peter speaks of this precious blood and he graciously shed to redeem slaves of sin and his heart is just so full that by the time he mentions Christ's name at the end of the verse, he just can't hold it in. His heart is just set ablaze. It erupts in celebratory praise of the glory of Jesus in so beautiful a fashion that it almost sounds lyrical as you read it, foreknown before the foundation of the world appeared in these last times for your sake, raised from the dead and given glory. Through Him, you you believe in hope in God. This is the third consideration that will feed the pilgrim's holy fear of God and strengthen us to stand firm in the face of the persecution that's coming, in the face of temptations to compromise. It's the consideration of the glory of our Savior. A glorious Savior is the pilgrim's strength. And there are at least four aspects of the glory of your Savior that Peter celebrates in these two verses, and we'll devote ourselves to meditating on those four aspects of Christ's glory in the remainder of our time together. In the first place, consider His predetermination. Number one, His predetermination. Verse 20. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. See, this Christ, this spotless Lamb of God who has shed his precious blood for the redemption of his people, he is no ordinary Redeemer. He is, in fact, the eternally appointed Redeemer. The plan for Christ to rescue sinful man from our feudal way of life inherited from our forefathers was a plan that was devised in eternity, before the foundation of the world, Peter says. And this is astounding, if for no other reason than that it means that the remedy for sin was planned before mankind had sinned, before mankind was created even. This is just one of the many passages of Scripture, friends, that teach us that God is absolutely sovereign in the matters of sin and salvation. That man's fall into sin did not take God by surprise. That the cross of Christ was not an afterthought. It was not God's plan B response to Adam's thwarting of God's purposes in the garden. No, the cross and therefore the sin that made the cross necessary were plan A in God's mind. Before God created Adam and Eve, before He placed them in the garden, before He gave them the command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and therefore certainly before they disobeyed Him and plunged all of humanity into cursed destruction, He had designed our redemption in Christ. That's why the Apostle John in Revelation 13, 8 calls Him literally the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Not, of course, because Christ became man and died before the world began, but because God's plan to rescue sinners from damnation by the death of Christ was established in eternity past. It's why 
In Ephesians 1.4, the Apostle Paul says that the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He uses that same phrase to speak of the Father's unconditional election of individuals to salvation, which took place in eternity past. Before anyone had sinned, before anyone had been created, before anyone had done anything good or bad, God determined that He would create men and women in His own image. He determined that they would fall into sin, and He determined that He would rescue them from that sin in Christ, who is God the Son, the second person of the eternal Trinity. That's why Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.9 that God granted us grace in Christ Jesus from all eternity. And I want you to notice this particular way Peter speaks about God's eternal plan of salvation in Christ. He says that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And this word foreknown means so much more than simply knowing beforehand. This is not just that the Father somehow looked down the corridors of time and knew before it happened that the Son would be the one to redeem sinners. Oh, let me find out how this story ends. Oh, look, it's my Son. This is great. No, the proper sense of this term, to foreknow, is, as one preacher put it, the establishment of a relationship with distinguishing love and purpose. And in fact, that's how the term is used most often with respect to God's foreknowledge. It's a synonym for God's election of individuals to salvation. We see that in the opening verses of this letter, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, chosen in foreknowledge. We see it perhaps most clearly in Romans 8, 29, where Paul says, For those whom the Father foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He, the Son, would be the firstborn among many brethren. Foreknowledge is synonymous with predestination, with foreknowledge emphasizing God's love and predestination emphasizing God's sovereignty. God determines to set His love upon individuals and establish a relationship with them, and in the same moment, predestines or predetermines that the end goal of their election will be brought to fruition, their ultimate likeness to Jesus Christ, their conformity to His Son's image. And so the idea of foreknowledge isn't just knowing facts in advance, it's loving people in advance. It speaks of the knowledge that characterizes an intimate personal relationship. And perhaps this is most clearly illustrated in Romans 11:2, where Paul uses the same word with respect to God's relationship to His people, Israel. He says there, God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Now, of course, for God to foreknow Israel doesn't mean that Israel was the only people that God knew about. God is omniscient. Now, Paul is emphasizing the intimate relationship that God had established between him and Israel, founded on those covenants of promise. He set his love upon them, Deuteronomy 7, 7, and bound himself to them by covenant. In Jeremiah 1, 5, God speaks to Jeremiah concerning his call to the ministry. And he says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. 
And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. So to know, to consecrate, to set apart, to appoint for ministry. These are the concepts that that are at play when Peter says Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. In eternity past, in the secret councils of the Trinity, there existed such an intimate personal relationship and knowledge between the Father and the Son that there was established this special relationship between them in which the Father set His love upon the Son, chose the Son, set the Son apart, appointed the Son to be the mediator between God and men, and promised to reward the Son upon the completion of His task of salvation. In John 17, 24, Jesus prays to the Father on behalf of, the peop- of His people that they would see the glory that the Father had given Jesus. And He says, I'm praying for this, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus uses this same phrase in 1 Peter 1, 20, before the foundation of the world. And instead of saying, you foreknew me before the foundation of the world, He gives the sense of the term, you loved me before the foundation of the world. In Isaiah 42, 1, God speaks of His servant and says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So the foreknown one is the chosen one. In Hebrews 3, 2, the author says Christ was faithful to him who appointed him. What did he appoint him to do? To be the high priest of his people. And Hebrews 5, 1 says that high priests were appointed by God on behalf of men. And in 5, 10, it says Jesus was designated by God to be a priest. And what do priests do? Hebrews 2, 17, they make propitiation for the sins of the people. And how did Jesus do that? through His sacrificial substitutionary death on the cross. Remember Acts 2.23, this man delivered, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross and put Him to death. And what was His reward? What did the Father promise the Son upon a successful completion of redemption? Psalm 2.8, Ask of me, the Father says to the Son, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. Isaiah 52, 13, Behold, my servant will succeed. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Isaiah 53, 10, He will see his seed and will prolong his days and the good pleasure of Yahweh will prosper in his hand. As the result of the anguish of his soul, he will see And be satisfied. And so Peter calls us to consider that glory of our Savior. And and first of all, to consider the glory of His predetermination. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Loved, chosen, set apart, anointed, foreordained, predestined to accomplish this work of redemption for those whom the Father had given Him and invested with the sure promise of reward and blessing. But what sense does that make in the flow of Peter's argument? 
conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your sojourn on earth because you were redeemed by an eternally appointed, predetermined, foreordained Redeemer. Why does that make sense? Well, consider how these persecuted pilgrims were regarded by the world around them. Think about how you're regarded by the world around you. You are religious fanatics. You, who, you worship a crucified carpenter whom you've never seen. You believe in fairy tales because you need a supreme authority to appeal to so that you can force everyone else to behave like you think they should. You're narrow-minded. You're anti-science. You're homophobic, transphobic, misogynistic, xenophobic bigots. You are literally a threat to public health. You, like Peter's audience, have become painfully aware that you have no place in this world, that you are strangers and exiles on the earth, that you are the offscouring of the world. Paul calls you the scum of the earth and the dregs of all things, 1 Corinthians 4.13. And what does Peter do? He tells you, Not only have you been redeemed by this precious blood of Christ, but there was never a time, not in all of human history, where your father did not have you on his heart. From before the foundation of the world, God saw your wretchedness. He saw your fallen Adam. He saw the sins of your youth. He saw the sins of your adolescence. He saw the sins that you would commit even since becoming a Christian and apart from anything in you. Indeed, despite everything in you, He chose you for Himself and gave you to His Son in this great eternal transaction from before time began. He set apart His own beloved Son in whom He was always well pleased and appointed Him to be your mediator to stand between you and your deserved condemnation and to be crushed under the full fury of the wrath of God for your sins. Oh, how boundless is the love of the Father to us sinners. And Peter says, this is your standing in the world, pilgrim. This is your standing eternally graced by so glorious a Father who set apart and appointed His Son for you before the foundation of the world. How could you ever displease so gracious a God? How could you ever be tempted to compromise faithfulness to Him even in the midst of the severest persecution if He has loved you like this? Oh, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, considering the glory of your Savior in His predetermination. A second aspect of the glory of your Savior comes also in verse 20. Number two, consider the glory of your Savior in His incarnation. His incarnation. For He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for your sake. And this term appeared is translated from the Greek word phanerao. It means to make manifest, to reveal, to disclose. And as we have just seen, 
God the Son was appointed to be mankind's redeemer from eternity past. He is, again, Revelation 13, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, which means that Jesus is no less the redeemer of the Old Testament saints as he is the New Testament saints, because it is the efficacy of his blood that redeems all who are saved in any age. Whereas our faith looks back to him, their faith looked forward to him in the types and the symbols that God revealed to his people at that time. And so Christ has always been the Redeemer, but he has appeared in these last times for your sake. And of course, this doesn't mean that he merely appeared to come to earth, that he was a ghost or an apparition that uh, wasn't really human, but just only appeared to be. There were early heresies that taught that very thing. But that the Apostle John addressed in 1 John 4, 2, by this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And so appeared doesn't mean that Christ seemed to dwell among us. No, this is referring to the incarnation of the Son of God, of God the Son, the eternal Word from the Father, John 1, 1 who was in the beginning, who was with the Father in the beginning, and who was himself God in the beginning, this Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The eternal second person of the Trinity, Philippians 2, though existing in the nature of God, didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but nullified himself. How? By taking the form of a slave, the nature of a slave, and being made in the likeness of men. The eternal Son made Himself of no effect by taking on a human nature, even while never altering His divine nature, never shedding His godness, 100% God, 100% human, to full and true natures subsisting in the single person of God the Son, which is the miracle of all miracles. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since the children, us whom he came to save, share in flesh and blood, he himself also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. The Son of God partook of the same human nature, the same flesh and blood, as we sinners have, so that he could accomplish our righteousness as a man, and so that he could bear the curse of death in our place. Fully man and therefore able to stand as man's substitute. Fully God, and therefore able to satisfy the wrath of God on behalf of the innumerable sinners whom the Father had given Him and whom the Spirit draws to Him in repentance and faith. And so behold the glory of the Incarnation. Only God Himself could ever atone for sin. And yet only man's sacrifice would be accepted on behalf of man. No one ought to pay except man, and no one can pay except God. And so in marvelous wisdom, God conceives of the unthinkable, that to reconcile man to God, God would become man. Hebrews 9.26, but now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested, same word, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. At the consummation of the ages, 
says Hebrews 9.26. Galatians 4.4 4 says, when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son. Or, as our text in 1 Peter puts it, in these last times. This is a phrase that refers to the fact that we are living in the last days of salvation history. The end times began in Bethlehem with the birth of Messiah. All of history culminates in the appearing, in the incarnation, life, and death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 10, 11, Paul calls those of us who live in this era of history, those upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And Peter's making the same point as before. He's saying, you strangers and aliens, you hated suffering outcasts, you who have no home, no place to belong in this foreign land called planet earth, you whom the world regards as no more valuable than to be impaled on stakes and burned as human torches, can you fathom the unspeakable privilege that is yours? That the whole sweep of human history has been designed by the Lord of all creation. Look at it again in verse 20. For your sake, the God of the universe has planned from before time began. He has ordered all of human history, accomplished the, the greatest miracle in human history for your sake. By sending his beloved son into the world to bear man's nature so he could bear man's curse. Back in verses 10 to 12, Peter told them that the prophets who predicted Messiah's coming made careful searches and inquiries, longing to know who this Messiah would be and when would be the time of his coming. He says, these are the things into which angels long to look. The incarnation of God the Son astonishes the angels who minister before the face of God himself. What a stunning privilege that these suffering believers have, to be the ones upon whom the ends of the ages have come, to be living in the time of the fulfillment of centuries of prophecy. As Colossians 1.26 put it, the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to the saints, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so he says to them, and he says to us, could you throw away all those privileges by failing to conduct yourselves in fear of God during the time of your stay on earth? Could you, for a little rest, a little ease, a little relief from persecution, from the hatred of the world, throw away so rich an inheritance, so glorious a treasure, as to be the ones for whose sake all of history has been designed? And again, this appearing was no mere appearance. He was born to die. The incarnation is simply the means to the atonement. Christmas is just the prelude to Good Friday. The incarnation meant one thing. It meant the cross. It meant the wrath of God. That's what Peter means when he says, he's appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though being rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, 
so that you, through His poverty, might become rich. And that poverty was nothing other than being stripped of His most precious treasure, being abandoned by His Father to suffer the wrath that you and I deserved. The great Puritan John Flavel applies this thought to each one of us. He says, Ah, Christian, can you look upon Jesus as standing in your place to bear the wrath of a deity for you? Can you think on it and not melt that when you, like Isaac, were bound to the altar to be offered up to justice, Christ, like the ram, was caught in the thicket and offered in your place? When your sins had raised a fearful tempest that threatened every moment to entomb you in a sea of wrath, Jesus Christ was thrown over to appease that storm. Say, reader, can your heart dwell one hour upon such a subject as this? Can you with faith present Christ to yourself as he was taken down from the cross, drenched in his own blood, and say, these were the wounds that he received for me? This is He that loved me and gave Himself for me. Out of these wounds comes that balm that heals my soul. Out of these stripes my peace. When He hanged upon the cross, He bore my name upon His breast like the high priest. And then Flavel says it was love, pure love, strong love to my poor soul, to the soul of an enemy that drew him down from heaven and all the glory he had there to endure these sorrows in soul and body for me. Oh, may Jesus Christ be praised for his grace to us. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. For your sake. Christian, can you meditate on the glory of your Savior in the glory of his incarnation? And the glory, therefore, of his substitutionary atonement and and not have your fear fed and not have your resolve strengthened to stand against compromise and shipwreck. One commentator counsels us, if you would increase much in holiness and be strong against the temptations to sin, this is the only art of it. View much and so seek to know much of the death of of Jesus Christ. Keep a dying Savior ever before you, and you will be strengthened to be faithful. But we must move on, because Christ does not stay dead, does He? No, he, the sorrows of Good Friday give way to the triumphs of Resurrection Sunday, and Peter does the same as he come to, comes to a third aspect of the glory of your Savior. Number three, His exaltation, his exaltation. Look at verse 21, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. You see, this man was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. He was nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men who put him to death. That's Acts 2.23. But what does Acts 2.24 say? But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Though Christ was genuinely forsaken by the Father on the cross, 
The resurrection demonstrates that the father was satisfied by the son's sacrifice and that since sin had been paid for, the son was restored to fellowship with his father. And not only was Jesus resurrected, but then he ascended back from the earth to the Father where he now, this very moment, sits reigning over all things at the Father's right hand. Before his ascension, Jesus said, Matthew 28, 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. In the opening book of Hebrews, the author speaks of the Son whom the Father appointed heir of all things. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 2.9 says, because of the suffering of death, Jesus was crowned with glory and honor. But why does Peter call attention to this? Because it reminds the believers and it reminds us that we trust in and follow a Christ who is not unacquainted with suffering. We do not have a never-suffering Savior. We have a Savior that was hated, that was spit on, that was mocked and beaten and killed in the most shameful way that men knew how to kill people. But that very same Savior, Peter's point is, was raised from the dead. Philippians 2, he was highly exalted and given the name which is above every name. Ephesians 1, he was seated at the Father's right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. You see, our Savior was made for another world. He came into this world as a pilgrim, as a stranger, as an exile in a foreign land a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. His sufferings were infinitely greater than anything that we could imagine going through. But he did not waver in faithfulness to his father. He did not compromise. He conducted himself in fear during the time of his stay on earth because he knew it was only a temporary stay. He knew that this life was for laying down. He knew that this life was for giving away and that the next life was for rest and reward. And as a result of his faithful obedience, he was raised from the dead and exalted to heaven. Dear brothers and sisters, that is not only our Savior. That is our forerunner. He has blazed the trail that he now calls us to walk as suffering pilgrims on a journey to heaven. And if we can fix our eyes on Gethsemane and on Golgotha and think of the depths of the dishonor that he suffered in his life, and then if we can raise our eyes to heaven and think of the heights of the glory that he enjoys now and that he promises to us as our imperishable inheritance then we will be able to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily, and to follow after Him. If we can, like Stephen, gaze intently into heaven and by the spiritual sight of faith, see the glory of God and see Jesus standing at the right hand of God, then even in the midst of our greatest of trials, even amidst a shower of stones like Stephen endured, we can be comforted that Christ 
our head has been exalted to, to glory, and that therefore we, his body, shall join him before long. Flavel said, if the head is above water, the body cannot drown. And so do you see, the very worst that they can do to us is kill us. But we serve a Savior who looked at Martha, weeping for her brother's death, and said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then, by the power of his own voice, he raised Lazarus to life. And he says, and a time is coming and now is when everyone, when all who are in the tombs will hear the voice of the Son of God and will be raised, some to a resurrection of life and others to a resurrection of judgment. When your heart grabs a hold of that precious truth, that no matter how miserable your persecutors attempt to make your life on this earth, that you will live again, that on the last day, the one who raised Jesus from the dead will raise your decaying body to life again and will unite it with, with your body and or with your soul, excuse me, for you to live again in the integrity of body and spirit on the new earth. When you, when you grab hold of that truth, you become invincible. The world doesn't know what to do with you. You live above the fear of death. You live above the fear of man and you conduct yourselves in the fear of God. One more aspect of the glory of your Savior that will feed the pilgrim's holy fear and equip us to endure persecution and resist temptation to compromise. That is, number four, his exclusivity. His exclusivity. Look at the whole text again, starting in verse 20. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And this is just a simple point, but it's so crucial. There is no access to God except by Jesus Christ. There is no access to God except by Jesus Christ. There is only one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Only He was foreknown before the foundation of the earth. Only He was God of very God from all eternity, who became man in the incarnation in the fullness of time. Only He bore the wrath of God on the cross for sinners. Only His blood was precious as a lamb unblemished and spotless. Only He was raised from the dead on the third day. Only He was exalted into heaven above all power and authority. And so only He can be the object of your trust for the forgiveness of sins. And if He is not yet, I call you to turn from your sins and trust in Christ for your righteousness this very day. Don't sit under the preaching of the gospel of Christ and cling to your sin and your death. Don't sit listening to the glories of Christ being celebrated while all the while shutting your heart against Him. 
Friend, there is a day coming soon when the door of mercy will be shut against you. When you will long to see the glory of Jesus. When you will ache to hear just one word of the glorious good news that you have sat under this morning. And there will be no glory to see. And there will be no gospel to hear. The only thing you'll see will be the black darkness of hell. The only thing you'll hear will be the weeping and gnashing of teeth of those who have been damned for eternity along with you. And yet, friend, you sit here this very day with the door of God's mercy flung wide open to you. With the open arms of Christ Himself beckoning to you to repentance and faith. Pleading with you to forsake your sin and your confidence in your own righteousness and to come to Him and find rest for your weary soul. Don't delay another moment. Repent and believe in Christ this morning. And dear fellow believers, you who are trusting in Christ here today, though you may be despised by the world, your faith and your hope are in God. You have reason to hope. And your reason to hope is not because you will have won the world's admiration. It is not because you will eventually convince the world of your political views and will Christianize the culture. It is not because you will make America great again. No, your faith and your hope are in the God who appointed His Son for you in eternity past and then sent Him into the world to accomplish your redemption and then raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that you know that no matter what takes place on this earth, the same exalted destiny that Christ entered into awaits you as well. You see, the God of Scripture does not offer us any hope, any solace, by setting our minds on this world and the things of this world, but by raising our eyes to heaven, where Christ is, Colossians 3, seated at the right hand of God. Paul says, for you have died And your life is hidden with Christ in God. Here, the writer of Hebrews says, we have no lasting city. But we are seeking the city which is to come. A city that has foundations. Not like here where moth and rust destroy. Not this present creation which Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3 will dissolve like snow in the heat of divine judgment. No, we're looking For the city whose architect and builder is God. We're looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We're looking for a heavenly city that will not decay and will not fade away. We are longing for our home. Where we can be face to face with our precious Jesus. To sit with him. To walk with him. To talk with him. To be embraced by him. To be at rest with him. Christian, you may be hated and despised by the world. You may be the special object of the world's derision and even persecution. The storm is coming, but you be faithful. You magnify the worth of Jesus by the way that you suffer for his sake. You conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. 
because soon shall close thy earthly mission. Soon shall pass thy pilgrim days. Hope shall change to glad fruition, faith to sight, and prayer to praise. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would put the steel of conviction in the spine of every believer within the sound of my voice. I pray that you would consume your people with the glory of your Son. Make us so delighted in him and the beauty of his glory, the manifold perfections of his character and the the glories of his work on our behalf that we're fearless, that we go into this world that despises us, preaching a gospel that subdues sinners' hearts as it has subdued ours, that withstands scorn and derision, that welcomes pain and suffering if it means faithfulness to you, that takes every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, that withstands godlessness and unrighteousness and preaches the law and the gospel of God to a dying generation, not because our hope is in a Christianized country or world, but because we would be faithful witnesses, testifiers to the truths of God that have been accomplished now at the consummation of the ages in your dear Son, who's lived for us, accomplished our righteousness, died to bear our sin, risen again for our justification, and is seated in the heavenlies where he welcomes us before long. Help us to be a people who lay our lives down, who give our lives away because we know that here is not our time for exaltation, but there is. Where Christ is now is where we are to find our life and that it is only a few short decades before every one of us is there or in the place of torment. This world is not for living for. God, stamp that truth upon our souls. Help us to steward the gift of life, this earthly life, as, as you would have it, that in, in, in such a way that makes much of the glory of Jesus, that proclaims his worth to the world. And when the world comes and tells us, we're going to take away this if, unless you renounce Christ. We're going to make things hard for you unless you compromise the truth unless you go along with our program of cultural totalitarianism and secularism. In that moment, Lord, make us treasure Christ so deeply that we would say, it is more glorious to me to have him than everything you can take away. And then your name would be exalted. Accomplish it for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.